Sweeper, editor of World's Review. Joining me as usual is Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing a lot better than John Heasley was last night. <laughs> I got that going for me, at least. How? What is the most times you've thrown up in a single like evening? Like, <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't think I've ever counted. Uh, probably uh, three is probably it. But I, I definitely was not pitching in a major league baseball game when I was doing it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was pretty funny that you know I thought he was that's him food poisoning or maybe heat exhaustion or something. But they said he was just too amped up, and uh, oh, I don't know. Like it's, it wasn't like that's... it was his major league debut or anything. Like he's been in the big leagues before. I didn't get yeah, why. You can't get that amped up. That's that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, well, Matthew couldn't make it tonight, so filling in today is Greg Walker. He writes on our site and is, also has his own podcast, Bat Flips and Infield Shifts. Greg, how are you doing, and what's the most you've ever thrown up in one night? I'm doing all right, man. Thanks for having me on again. It's been a little while, and the number's probably pretty high. I imagine I had some night in college at some point where I was going out and partying and had just way too much liquor in my system. So I might have even more than John Heasley last night. I don't know. I'm just bummed out that I couldn't actually watch the game with audio last night because I was out. And so I didn't get to hear how evidently Ryan Lefevre was just losing himself <laughs> after Rex Hudler told kind of his related story. It just didn't say anything for several solid minutes that Rex Hudler took over as like the play-by-play. I wish I'd gotten to see that. But, you know, I do I do feel for John Heasley ralphing an inopportune moment. So I have, I've been there before, not specifically on a baseball mound, but at times he'd rather not. Yeah, I've been there. Rex said that uh, he had had it come out. He had never had that happen to him, but he had had an instance where it came out the other end. So you can, I think you can probably put two and two together, what he means there. And uh, Ryan Lefevre is not heard for the next four minutes after that, uh, because I think he was laughing hysterically and had the mute button on. Uh, But that is one of the better Rex Hudler anecdotes. And I would like to actually hear more about that because uh, I feel like we need more details. You can't just uh, drop that on uh, a broadcast. They got to do like a thing with uh, George Brett, right? right. Gotta get Rex Heller and George Brett together and, and just kind of do a combo of that. Yeah, he's got to at least like haze the rookies with like going around and, and saying, uh, you know, telling them the, the time about the time he uh, had it come out the other end. Uh, I presume during a game is what he meant, but uh I don't know. But yeah, it was a rough rough night for Jonathan Heasley. Uh, and it's been a rough time for the Royals. They had a 1-6 road trip. They came back, uh, had, uh, you know, played against the White Sox, did did well there, a, sweep, a one-game sweep, but then came out with an ugly game against the Diamondbacks in which they walked nine hitters. Uh, the bullpen just blew up uh, after Heasley could only go four and a third innings. Um, and it's, you know, the season hasn't gone the way I think a lot of people would have liked, but they had been playing better over the last two months since the young guys kind of got called up to the big leagues. They're going, they're going to have ups and downs. I think everyone understands that the hitters have really gone into a, a drought, uh, which, you know, they're all, it's, it's some nights there's seven rookies in the lineup. So that's going to happen. But, you know, we are uh, really, this is year five of a rebuild here. That, and I don't think by anyone's standards, the Royals are at the place where they want to be. Um, and we've seen a couple of their organizations in the Rangers and the Tigers kind of shake up things because uh, the, the, there hasn't been enough progress. Uh, Texas fired both general manager John Daniels, who had been there uh, for a decade. In fact, took them to back-to-back pennants in 2010, uh, 9 and 10, or 2010, 2011. Um, and they also fired manager Chris Woodward. 
Uh, and then the range, uh, the Tigers fired general manager Al Avila. Tigers, the Tigers kind of started the rebuild a little bit, a little bit a year, a year I think a bit ahead of the Royals, um, and 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 really went more full board I think with the rebuild than the Royals did, trading you know, guys like Justin Verlander away. Uh, and they have really taken a step backwards this year, despite going with young guys. We've also seen four managers fired this year, like I mentioned, Chris Woodward in Texas, but also Charlie Montoya in Toronto, Joe Madden with the Angels, Joe Girardi with the Phillies. In some cases. Like with uh, the Phillies, they've actually played a lot better since firing their manager. Um, so, you know, we've seen some accountability around the league, Jeremy, but yet in Kansas City, you know, so far, all we've seen as far as a shakeup is the hitting coach was dismissed. Mike Matheny still has his job. Cal Eldred still has his job. Uh, Dayton Moore, J.J. Piccolo still have their jobs. Uh, we haven't really seen much of a shakeup. Do you feel like we are going to see one at the end of the year, or have has the have the young players kind of given everyone a reprieve and saved some jobs here? So uh, I guess it depends on uh, how long this slump lasts. You know, it was easy to be excited when the team was six and two, uh, won those back to back four game series, and the rookies were looking good, and everybody could say, you know, oh, uh, maybe they had something in their farm system after all. Uh, who, you know, everybody knew Bobby Witt Jr. and MJ Melendez and Nick Prado, but then here comes. Nate Eaton and Vinny Pasquantino and, and everybody. And they said, oh, well, maybe they got something. And uh, Brady Singer has been just lights out since coming back into the rotation. Chris Bubich has been good for a couple of months. Uh, you know, so it was easy to say, oh, yeah. But then you see this slump that you were just talking about and you go, oh, right, rookies. And, uh, you know, if the slump continues, then you have to wonder how much of that was a fluke, uh, how much of the winning was a fluke. And it's the there's no way of knowing right now it's the sample sizes are all tiny for everybody on this team uh even even mj melendez I, bobby witt jr is about the only rookie who doesn't have a tiny sample size and that's only because he's been on the roster the whole time and and honestly it's not even a whole season the less than a season is not a great sample size um so it's there's it's hard to tell but I, I have decided that I am, I'm not going to bet, uh, uh, even, even without currency, even just on my reputation. I'm not going to bet that the Royals fire people anymore because it just doesn't seem to happen. I was sure Cal Eldred was gone last year. I was sure when the hitting coach got relieved earlier this year that Cal Eldred couldn't be far behind. Uh, as you see, like you talk about Texas, Detroit, you see other teams go, you know what, this, this cannot continue. Maybe it's not your fault. The Phillies, I think like Joe Girardi, but they said, we can't keep doing this. We're losing when we shouldn't be losing and you've got to go, even if it's not your fault, we've got to do something. And the Royals have remained content for many, many, many years, uh, to do nothing regardless of how much it seems like they should do something, anything. And, and so I'm just not going to bet on anybody losing their jobs this offseason. And you mentioned, you know, the, the small sample size for these rookies. And look, we know they're going to have ups and downs. No, they're not going to set the world on fire immediately, Greg. Uh, so that kind of, in a way, you know, rebuilds kind of extend the timeline uh, for executives. It seems it's kind of a convenient way for them to say, well, you know, I just need more time. We, I want to, you know, some people would argue they deserve to see this rebuild through. Um, but, you know, in Texas, the owner there said uh, the bottom line is we're not good. And, quote, we haven't been good for six years. This is year five for the Royals, um, actually, and actually six years of, of losing seasons, if you count 2017 uh, being a, a losing year, although they were in contention for some of that year. 
Um, so do you see a rebuild kind of buying Dayton Moore and, and J.J. Piccolo some time or Mike Bethany some time? Or do you think there will be a point where ownership, which is a new ownership, which never never hired Dayton Moore, uh, they inherited him. Um, is there come? Do you think there's a point where the ownership steps in and says, "You know what? We're not gonna, we're not gonna continue to go down this path." You know, it's hard to tell just because John Sherman hasn't owned the team for really all that long, and there's been all kinds of weird circumstances going on throughout his ownership tenure, and so there's no real precedent involving you know what kind of decisions that he would make, and so it's hard to get a read based on that, and. I don't think it's really that instructive to look at other organizations either, just because it seems like the Royals operate in completely different worlds than other orgs. I mean, I think Jeremy kind of nailed it when he said, like, I just don't see anybody moving. I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm, I'm right there, too. I mean, I don't think they're going to make any kind of major changes. I won't count on it until it actually happens. And who knows when that will be. But, you know, when you look at those other rebuilding teams that, you know, just fired their general managers in Texas and Detroit, the reasoning for it is sound, and the Royals are kind of in similar positions. But nonetheless, I just I don't see them doing it either, just because you know Baltimore, for example, they've been rebuilding for about the same amount of time as the Royals have, but they made a regime change you know a while ago, way earlier in their rebuild. So that's not really instructive. With Detroit, they're on kind of a similar timeline, right? They've been rebuilding for a similar amount of time. They also had a bunch of young hotshot prospects coming up this year, and so we figured, all right. They're ready to take a step forward, and then they didn't, and they're right back in the basement. So, hence, Alavila was fired. Royals are right there, too. And so it would make perfect sense looking at that to think, okay, they should also make a regime change here. But just with this organization operating the way they do, I just don't see it happening. I can't even specifically say it's the rebuild buying them time or anything. I just think it's inertia. Like, they're just not going to make the change. And I, honestly, I don't know what would have to happen for them to do so. Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, the Rangers, I think part of why they made a change was uh, they spent a lot of money this past offseason with Corey Seager and Marcus uh, Semien and John Gray, and weren't, they weren't seeing the returns on it. They also have, they just built a new stadium, and I think they'd like to fill that stadium after not being able to have, uh, you know, uh, fans for, for at least one of the, you know, in 2020. So there's probably a little more pressure to get, uh, to turn their fortunes around in the standings, and, you know, Daniels. Like I said, he's a guy that had kind of similar success to Dayton Moore. He won two pennants, was probably a Nelson Cruz catch away from winning a championship, um, and, and so you kind of and, and look, he was the he was the golden boy there for a while. That people thought he was doing a great job building that farm system when they had the number one farm system in baseball, uh, and and they kind of uh, that organization kind of fell into disrepair a little bit. They can happen with any franchise, uh, but a little more urgency there in Texas because of that situation now. I think John Sherman is trying to get support for a downtown baseball stadium or at least stadium renovations at the K. Uh, and to do that, he's probably going to have to show fans that that he's dedicated to winning. Uh, and whether that whether or not that means making a big splash in payroll and, and, and free agency or shaking things up and bringing in a new general manager, um, we'll have to see. Now, the problem with bringing a new general manager sometimes is that um, that kind of resets things a little bit. And so there's, you know, I, I can't think of too many instances where a new general manager came in and the team like won like right away. I mean, you know, maybe with a Dave Dombrowski situation where they spent a lot of money immediately. Um, but usually, you know, it takes a, it takes a couple of years for the new general manager to put their stamp on the franchise and uh, and bring in the kind of players he wants. And so, you know, maybe that's not what John Sherman wants. Maybe he's looking for something a little quicker, which maybe means 
um, you know, maybe he has more of a say, or maybe Dayton Moore has less of a say, and they rely on uh, a different, you know, JJ Piccolo, or maybe some some different personnel. Uh, I do think they are going to. I'm not expecting major changes. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting. David Lesky, I think, has kind of hinted at he thinks there's going to be some changes this offseason, uh, at least with with Matheny and Eldred. I can see Eldred. I think I think that it's become clear he needs to be replaced, and I think that's something even ownership can't deny at this point. Um, and I think maybe they just said, you know what, it doesn't make sense to do it midseason because we you know we don't have really a replacement and we don't want to send mixed messages to our pitchers or whatever. Uh, so I can kind of see that, but I do think he'll, he will get replaced. Matheny. I could see it either way. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's 50, 50. I don't think there's, uh, you know, look, they're, they're not really getting judged on wins and losses here. you got a young team. They're going to lose a lot of games. That's, I get that. That, that. That's not what I'm judging this team on. I'm judging it on how, what kind of progress are they making with these young players? And I think if you were to take, a, an optimistic view, I think you could make the argument that they are making progress. Now, it may be slow progress, um, but they are making some progress. And so maybe that saves Mike Matheny, Mike Matheny's job. Maybe that saves Dade Moore's job. Maybe that saves everyone's job. Um, but um, I do think there is going to be a serious evaluation this offseason. Uh, maybe not a lot of people losing their jobs, but, um, but, but I think I do expect at least some changes because you can't have five straight seasons in the dumps and not do something right like hitting coach is not uh that's not going to quite cut it so don't get my hopes up like that max <laughs> I, when you were talking about Matheny just a second ago i was thinking about like the other thing you can really judge a manager on one of the one of the things you can judge him on is their bullpen usage yeah and i remember being really excited about how Matheny was using the bullpen in 2020 and i don't I don't know if he changed or my opinion has changed, but I do not like the way he's used the bullpen this year at all. Uh, I think it's been kind of a mess, and I think guys don't know when they might pitch and when they might not pitch. Um, and I last night's game was kind of a disaster. You mentioned Lesky when I was reading his uh, his uh, thing this morning. Is his uh, I can't what words are gone inside the royal or inside the 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 crown is yeah his newsletter inside the crown. Um, he, he mentioned that, uh, you know, Josh Stalmont was asked to come out there and throw two innings and you've got Luke Weaver sitting in your bullpen. Who's been a starter this year. You know, I mean, they knew they had to eat it at that point. Uh, the game was kind of getting out of hand, but then you, you, you're going to just sit there and, and ruin Josh Stalmont, who's still a young guy who's not far removed from being really good and, and not ruin him necessarily, but push him well beyond his limits. That just seems like a really questionable management decision as far as the bullpen goes. Well, in my I def- think you can offer a good explanation for having Josh Stalmont throw 42 pitches when he hadn't thrown even 30 in a game in three months. Yeah, and his and his velocity was noticeably down. I mean, he looked like he was not right, kind of almost from the get go. And he took that shot off uh, off his body too, that that perhaps uh, affected his play too. Um, you know, I, I will give him a defensive Athenian that you know the bullpen is running on fumes, right? They don't have depth there. There weren't a lot of great options to turn to. Um, like they've had very few good relievers, and when they do, they seem to go down with injury. And maybe that's part of that's on Matheny, but to me, I, I don't think Matheny's that bad of a manager, just because I don't think managers have that big of an impact overall, and to me, it, it just points to a larger problem of, like, well, who's putting the these pitchers in the bullpen? I mean, they've got 
they have Luke Luke Weaver, who look, it's it's he's been a royal for less than a month. But for him to play against the Diamond they played against the Diamondbacks. He was traded from the Diamondbacks for Emmanuel Rivera. And boy, was that not a good game for that trade to look good for the Royals. I mean, <laughs> Luke Weaver went out and was a gas can, while Emmanuel Rivera just takes out all his frustrations on the Royals with a, a big double. And he's been hitting, he's been getting the cover off the ball. I saw one, uh, you know, his numbers right now for the year are, are almost identical to Bobby Wood Jr.'s offensively. Now, defensively is another story. Um, and he's, I, I saw some stat that he's like the second most valuable player that was traded at the, at the at the deadline. That's with his new team, um, which you know, small sample size has been three. He's had a good three weeks, so we'll see. And I, it's not like I thought Emmanuel Rivera was any hot shakes, but to trade him for to trade a guy who you don't know if he's something, he could be something, and you've got six years of him for a pitcher who has been pretty below average what three four years now in a row is hurt or was hurt is coming off injury. And you only and is is not cheap. He's going to be making a couple million dollars this year and next. And you only have him for one. The best case scenario, you have him for one year, and then he's going to have, be able to test the free agent market. I don't get how that makes sense at all for the Royals. And I know we kind of glossed over at the trade deadline because there's so many, so many more, so many more trades. And you know, it's not like that's the worst trade in the world, but it sure doesn't look very good. And it doesn't say much for their evaluation uh, skills. And you know. People have made a big deal about Jacob Junis leaving the organization and doing well. Look at Jorge Lopez. He leaves the organization, becomes an all-star. Jason Adams has a 1.07 ERA for the Rays this year. Uh, even a guy like Albert Abreu, who they had two months ago, leaves, goes to the Yankees, and is a serviceable reliever for a contender. It happens time and time again. The Royals, you know, look, Dave Moore used to be really good at putting together a bullpen. And for whatever reason, I mean, the game has changed quite a bit, but... A team like the Rays is able to pick guys up off the street seemingly and work with them on another pitch or change their grip or they get, a, you know, they get another two, three miles per hour more on their fastball and suddenly they're a dominant reliever and guys come to the Royals and just continue to flounder. And I, to me, I, I don't know. That's the bigger problem right now is maybe Dayton Moore was a good talent evaluator at one point uh, or maybe he's, he's delegated too much to people who don't know how to do it. But they're not identifying good talent, and they're not being—they're not able to um, get the most out of their players right now. And to me, that speaks to a, a bigger problem. We talk about the Adams and the Lopez of the world. Has everybody already forgotten that we had Liam Hendricks on the major league roster <laughs> at one point? <laughs> like the one of the best relievers in baseball over the past like four years. We just gave him away for nothing. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. I mean, that sometimes guys just develop odd i mean like other teams passed up on him too i get that but to have it happen so many times uh, you know it, it just i don't know there's something to that i think and then they they hang on to the hunter doziers and the ryan O'Hearns. right and how many chances will luke weaver get just to kind of justify this trade a little bit or maybe he's the right kind of character they're looking for uh yeah and, and guys like that get a long leash so it is a little confounding and and it's got to be like we talked about this before. It's got to be a little frustrating to some of the minor leaguers. I mean, here's another example. We saw Nate Eaton get sent down this week. Ryan O'Hearn continues to stay on the roster. Now, who's going to be more useful to a roster? Uh, Nate Eaton, who can play infield, play outfield, um, or Ryan O'Hearn, who can't really play first base, can't really play outfield, can't really hit. I mean, and I get that you want Eaton to get you know regular playing time, um, but 
they figure a way to get him in the spreadsheet. You know, like there's ways to get him in the lineup. He, I don't think he's like he's not going to be a star or anything. So it's okay if he plays two or three times a week. I think that's fine. But I, I'd much rather see him at the big league level than Ryan O'Hearn or, frankly, Hunter Dozier at this point. But uh, that's another that's another topic. But, the only explanation for Ryan O'Hearn is he must be an 80 grade clubhouse guy. Like that is the <laughs> only explanation I can think of. I mean, I feel kind of bad for the guy. I mean, I saw I saw he responded to one of the Royals tweets with like, I'm just here for the comments or something like that. <laughs> and he knows that he's not liked among the fan base. And it's look, it's to an extent, it's not really his fault. I mean, he is what he is and he's not the one that's keeping him, you know, like he could be better. I mean, I'm sure, but you know, it's, it's not, he's the whipping boy. And I understand it's like not really that fair to him. Like, you know, it's not him that's keeping himself on the roster necessarily, but you know, it's the team putting him on out there when he's making a million dollars. He's not hitting. He can't play. Like I said, he's not even good at defense. It'd be something if he was like, I'll see these Escobar is just playing really good defense. You're like, well, he can't hit. Okay. Well, at least he's providing something. Nicky Lopez isn't hitting this year, but at least he's providing really good defense. He can run, run the base a little bit. I don't know what Ryan heard of that. Yeah, you're right. He must be a great clubhouse guy because it doesn't make any sense. Well, speaking of other managing management decisions that um, you know we could we could we could criticize a little bit, uh, Greg, you had an interesting piece this week about uh, international signings uh, under the Royals lately and how they haven't really uh, born, bear, uh, produced many players that uh, are impact players lately. Could you talk a little bit about that article and and kind of what you found looking back at the Royals' international signings the last couple of years? Right, so I was just prompted to write it because, I mean, whenever there's discussions about, like, who is the face of baseball right now, whenever people are talking about, like, the future of the game, all the young superstars, most of the names that are going to come up first are guys that were originally signed as international amateurs. I mean, when you look at Juan Soto and Vlad Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tatis, who I still think is one of the faces of baseball, I don't care about the suspension or whatever, like Ronald Acuna Jr., all of those guys were signed as international amateur free agents. And it just struck me how looking at the major league roster for the Royals right now, there's just very little international presence there at all. I mean, on the 40-man roster right now, they only have eight players that were originally signed internationally. Two of them were originally signed by other organizations, so can't even give them really credit for Max Castillo or Edward Olivares. But when you look at the rest of the six guys, there's Salvador Perez, who, you know, he's a star, but at the same time, he was assigned the first year to Dayton Moore as general manager, so hard to really take anything away from that. That was 16 years ago. And aside from that, the rest of the international guys, it's like, you know, Carlos Hernandez, like Sebastian Rivero, Michael Garcia, it's like maybe there'll be something, but they're probably not going to be impact players. So there's just no impact international players, you know, on the major league roster or on the 60-day IL like Mondesi right now. And looking down on the farm system, there's not really any there either. I mean, there's a few top prospects up there. Like I mentioned, Garcia is pretty highly rated on Hell Zerpa. Eric Pena was a big signing over a few years ago. I don't want to talk about how he's doing in low A right now because it is not pretty. But he was, you know, a very highly rated international prospect. They just haven't developed any international prospects in a very long time. Like the most recent international signing they've gotten that's been a regular consistent contributor was Giordano Ventura and rest in peace. Who knows what could have been with him. You know, if he had gotten to stick around a little bit longer, but he was signed 14 years ago. So that's a 14 year drought where the Royals just haven't been able to produce anything. 
out of their international signings. The next best is really Adalberto Mondesi. And, you know, we've seen what he can do when he's healthy and playing well. We know that the lows are really, really low. But the, on the whole, he can be, you know, a valuable player in a big league team. But he's just never healthy. And, you know, the best predictor of future injury is injury history. And when a young guy is hurt this much, he's not just going to get healthier. So we can't have high expectations going forward. There's just no international talent, really, on this system that I think is going to make a big difference for this team. And that's a problem for a team like the Royals that doesn't go out and sign big-name free agents. They don't get their contributors doing that. They don't tend to lock up their young star players to long-term extensions, a la the Atlanta Braves. And so you have to explore just every avenue possible to get talent into the system. And the Royals just haven't been able to do that internationally. Now, the real question is, though, is this an international scouting issue or is this just part of their player development issue that we've seen with the amateur drafted players in the United States as well. I tend to think it's a development issue more than anything, but maybe international scouting needs to be looked at and overhauled. Well, yeah, I think what, what I kind of got from your article too, is that they, they kind of made a splash international signings early on in Dayton Moore's tenure. Like they uh, signed Noel for fans. Remember Noel Arguelles out of Cuba for like $7 million back when there were no caps on international free agent signings and he was he's a bust he never made it to the big leagues um and, and they've they've had some other you know Adalberto Mondesi was a big big free agent big international free agent signing who did make the big leagues but like you said he has a pretty mixed track record but guys like Elia Hernandez was a big free agent signing didn't really pan out Ricky Arasena I remember he was a big one um you know Martin Gasparini I think was signed for like a million dollars out of Italy and never really panned out uh so because of that it seems like they've kind of decided to go for quantity over quality, at least in terms of like prospect lists. Like you don't see them on Baseball America's like top thirty international signings uh, uh, lists much anymore. Um, but they are still spending money. It just seems to be sprinkled around a little bit more. Do you think it's? Do you think that's a contributing factor more, or or is it like a development thing? Because we haven't really seen them produce a lot of high school talent either. So like you know, if you're taking 16, 17, 18 year old kids putting them in the Royals farm system, they're not progressing no matter where they're from. Uh, so maybe that's the issue. What is there, is there, you know, do you come down on one side more than the other on that? Or is it just a kind of the totality of the totality of the problem right there? Yeah, it is worth noting those changes and how the international signing system kind of works. Maybe that's hamstringing the Royals a little bit, but even so the big rule changes there came in 2012. So there was still four different signing periods in there. They could have gotten talent. That's when they got Mondesi, but they also got a bunch of highly rated guys at the time that just didn't go on to do anything. I mean, think Humberto Arteaga, think Orlando Calixte. Like, they were very highly rated when they were signed, highly rated at various points when they were in the Royals minor league system, and just never panned out in the majors. And it, it is worth noting, as you mentioned, when you're signing these, you know, these international kids as 16-year-olds, like, the attrition rate is going to be high. Like, there's just a lot of them just aren't going to make it. That's kind of the nature of it. But... The fact that they haven't even been able to produce, like, just forget stars, just an, like an average regular contributor. They just haven't even been able to get one of those, unless you want to count Mondesi, which when he's on the field, yeah, he does it, but uh, we already mentioned that. It's, it's hard to say, really, because they've been able to get those still top-rated international prospects even since the signing rules changed. I mean, Suli Matias is one of those guys, like Eric Pena, as I mentioned, and those guys just haven't panned out, and I don't think Suley Matias is ever going to pan out. I don't know about Eric Pena. He's still young, but the early returns just aren't good on there. So I, I do tend to think it is just another indication, really, of just the deep-rooted player development issues in this organization. Maybe it's a talent acquisition issue. 
I don't know. I'm not you know deeply invested enough within the organization to really be privy to that kind of information. But regardless, the fact that they haven't been able to get just anything out of this market at all when so many other teams have gotten stars, it's, it's just dispiriting is what it is. The, you, know, you do mention the Royals do have some kind of promising you know players out of the Latin American market um, in their minor leagues. Michael Garcia, Angel Zerpa, who's shown a little bit at the big league levels as a starter. Um, Carlos Hernandez, who certainly has a big fastball, uh, but seems to have regressed a little bit this year. Uh, there's been a little bit of buzz, I think, for Diego Hernandez lately. Is there anyone that you see in the farm system that, that came through the Latin American uh, signings uh, that you think has potential to be the next good international signing uh, for the Royals, or is it, is it pretty barren in your mind? Well, it kind of depends on how you define good, really, because in terms of ceiling, Eric Pena is still like the one high-ceiling international guy I really see down there. And the floor is definitely very, very low for him, but he has all of the physical tools to be just an incredible player at the major league level. Maybe he'll be able to put it together with some more time in the system, work with the hitting gurus, because, you know, we've, we've seen them be able to turn guys around that have his kind of issues, like the big time swing and miss issues. I mean, look at Melendez, look at Nick Prado, who still has swing and miss issues, but he's been able to make it work regardless. He's the only really high ceiling guy that I see there. Like Diego Hernandez is promising. He's shown something in the minors this year. He could be you know, a solid major league player. Probably never going to be an all-star level player, though. Like, I just don't think he has really the tools to get there. He has decent skills, but not enough ceiling, I don't think. And then you look at, like, Zerpa and Garcia. I think they could be, you know, average players, which that would be a huge win for the system because they've had such a hard time even developing those. But I have a hard time seeing them being anything more than that. And, I mean, Carlos Hernandez, he's a reliever in my mind. I think he's only a reliever. I did not see him as a starter going forward. Yeah, I think I think that they really need to kind of dedicate themselves to putting him in the bullpen full time. I think he's a guy that could be a really effective reliever, but um, I think the ship is starting to sail on him as a starter. And frankly, other guys have kind of passed him by. Uh, you mentioned Monacy, and I do want to kind of talk about him a little bit. I think there's been a little discussion on Twitter about what his role will be with the Royals if he returns next year. Um, and, and I don't know; he may return this year. I assume if he does, it'll be at a pretty limited bench role. But the Royals have a decision to make on him. It'll be his final year before free agency, and he'll have one. Uh, it'll be his last year of arbitration, so they'll have to decide if they want to tender him a contract, I, you know, something like five, six million dollars, I think, um, or let him go. Uh, Jeremy, is there? First of all, I guess do you do you see the Royals bringing Adalberto Montesi back? And if so, what kind of role do you envision for him you know, on a 2023 roster with all these young guys coming up? It's really hard to to say because he has been one of those guys that the Royals just keep bringing back, no matter what. Like uh, like uh, um, uh, Ryan O'Hearn. Uh, Ryan O'Hearn. Yeah. <laughs> Golly, uh, you know. But he's also been one of those guys that they've been willing to to not necessarily be super kind about in the the press when Dayton Moore's like, oh, we can't rely on him uh, and stuff like that. So. Uh, and since my my sense of what the Royals will do with a given player goes more off of their vibes around that player than that player's actual skill or production, uh, it's hard to say because the vibes have been so mixed. If it was up to me, five or six million for Mondesi's, uh, you know, his potential, I'm probably going to go ahead and do it. Uh, and, and then I'm going to try and mix and match. I'm going to, I'm going to let, 
they've got a whole bunch of middle infielders, so there's no reason to play him every day. Um, and they, you know, outside Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, and maybe Michael Massey, they, they've got you know Michael Garcia, Nicky Lopez. Uh, do do either of them need to start every day? Not really. Um, so I think you could do a rotation, give Bobby Witt a day off, give Michael Massey a day off too, and, and get them all you know two three games a week. And I think that could be something. And you know, if Mondesi gets hot, then maybe you let him. You, you let out the rope a little bit, let him see how far he can go. Um, I, the only thing is that at this point, if he has a really good year, then he's going to be expensive to try and resign in free agency. You're not getting, there's no, no opportunity at this point for kind of a hometown discount on a contract because this is last year. And, and so what's, what's the end goal, I guess, because they're probably not going to be competitive next year either. And, there's, there, I don't guess there's not really an end goal, but that still seems like the kind of thing the Royals would do in chasing every single win, whether it makes sense or not. Uh, Greg, every single win if, that they can get immediately. They don't, they don't chase future wins. They chase current wins. Well, yeah, they, well, those, they, those, those count now. So, Greg, right. uh, if you had to guess, is Alberto Montesi in a Royals uniform next year? I think he has to be because, like, he's making $3 million this year going to arbitration. He's not going to get a whole lot more than $3 million going into next year. I mean, he's only played 15 games this year. So he's going to be fairly cheap. And there is no infielder on this roster not named Bobby that has a higher ceiling than Mondesi does. So, like, we've, we've seen the lows. And when Mondesi is struggling, it is ugly. I mean, you know, he, he swings at everything. He's basically unplayable. We've also seen the highs. Like, we've seen the second half of 2020 when he was the best player in the American league for basically a full month. We've seen 2018 and 2019 when he only played in 177 games and put up five war over those 177 games. Like he has all the tools and the ceiling to be an all-star and he's been able to do it for extended stretches. The issue has just been staying on the field in terms of a plan for how to deploy him. I just don't think there really is one. Like you can try to rotate him off and give him days off, but look, he's gotten injured in the on deck circle. Like, he's gotten injured getting back to first base. Like, there's there's no way to deploy him to guarantee he's not going to get hurt. So I say just put him on the roster and turn and burn. Like, just let him play, figure out how to get him in there because he has a talent that you, you need to find a way to get him in there if he's healthy and if he's still on the roster. Now, as Jeremy kind of alluded to, what role does he play beyond 2023? I have no idea because, yeah, if he's healthy and if he's really good, he's not sticking around. If he's not healthy, then, well, I mean, who knows? He might have to resign a minor league deal somewhere after next season. But, I mean, I just I don't see the downside, really, to just having him on the roster next season, run him out there every day at shortstop because, you know, Lopez is great. He was so good last year. And Bobby Wood Jr., I still think he'd be a shortstop despite all the evidence to the contrary. Modesty is the best defensive shortstop in this organization. So put him out there. Let him play every day and just see what happens. You know, let him struggle for 35 games before getting inevitably injured or something. I don't know. But with that kind of ceiling, the kind of talent he has, I say, I mean, you got to play him. He's not going to be expensive. He's not going to break the bank. So play him. Yeah, I think anytime I feel like there's a chance the Royals could non-tender a guy, they, they're, they, they keep him. So like, they don't like to part with, with, with guys um, unless they have to. So I do think they bring him back. And you're right. I mean, he's not going to make a ton of money. And frankly, they have a lot of payroll flexibility next year. So if even if he's a guy that's a utility player or a guy that's on the injured list most of the year, um, it's not going to kill them. And, and most of their starting lineup is probably going to be young guys they already have. So 
they don't need to actually go out and sign a bunch of players to fill lots of different holes. I think they need to revamp their bullpen, maybe add a starting pitcher. Um, you know, it'd be nice if they added a, a piece here or two, but um, they, they should have the flexibility to do that and bring back Bonacy. And you're right. I think the upside is there. And, and I know we say that every year, and he hasn't really, really, uh, you know, reached that potential. But why not? Uh, if he has a good first half, maybe you flip him. And some contenders says, "We'll we'll take a guy like that for his defense and, and speed, uh, and see what he can do in the postseason." And if uh, he's hurt, then I think the Royals part ways with him. And I, either way, I think next year is probably his last year in the Royals uniform. I don't envision them uh, bringing him back after that, just because they'll have they should have more than enough middle infielders at that point that they don't need to kind of mess around with Mountasee at, at whatever price he'll be at that point. But, uh, yeah, I can see them bringing him back next year and, and seeing, giving it one more go to see if he can actually uh, stay reasonably healthy, I think, for a full season. But um, either it still wouldn't surprise me if they, they do cut, weight, cut, cut ties with them just because I, I do sense some frustration uh, with them uh, and the, with the fact that he gets hurt all the time. Man, I'm just so bummed about all the injuries with him because he's stolen 133 bases in only 358 games. Like, he was the guy to make stolen bases great again. And if he hadn't gotten hurt, maybe he could have brought back the stolen base and probably challenged some records on the way. It's just it's, it's just such a bummer. Yeah, and, you know, Byron Buxton being kind of, like, reasonably healthy a little bit this year, like, that kind of gave me hope. And, and, you know, he was fantastic this year and an all-star finally, and you think – and well, gosh, what it take like eight years for him to finally do that? <laughs> so you kind of feel like Montesi's going to be the—he's probably going to be to have the same kind of career where he's just like every year teams are like, oh, maybe this is the year, and just like one year out of at age thirty, like randomly with the Marlins or something like that, he just puts to, puts together and has an All Star season. Maybe gets a good payday and then never does it again. <laughs> like I could totally see that happening with him. Let's take a break here, and when we come back, let's talk about the 2023 schedule, which just dropped, and uh, give our thoughts about uh, the new balanced schedule. We're back, and the uh, Royals have a new 2023 schedule out for next year. Uh, The big change is that there will be a balanced schedule this year under the new uh, collective bargaining agreement. Uh, Major League Baseball agreed to have a a more balanced schedule where teams don't play each uh, team in their division 19 times anymore. Uh, the, the number of intra-divisional games will go down from 76 to 52, and replacing those intra-divisional games will be a series against each team in the National League. So the Royals will, will, will play all, 30, all 29 other teams in baseball. Uh, they will still have a home and away with the Cardinals, their traditional rival, or rivalry, although there will be a two-game series in St. Louis and a two-game series in Kansas City. But uh, it's an interesting schedule. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot different. Uh, there are some little quirks I noticed. Uh, a Sunday off day, August something. August, yeah, uh, and August thirteenth, uh, right there. They uh, they have a, a uh, back-to-back off days, which is kind of unusual. But uh, the season will begin on March thirtieth against the Twins and end on October first against the Yankees. Uh, Jeremy, did you have any impressions about the twenty twenty-three schedule, and do you like the balance schedule? I I don't care. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it it might be fun to, you know, have uh, a a better opportunity to to see the Royals. Uh, If you don't live in Kansas City, go see some of these. You know, like maybe you live in Los Angeles. Probably not. But if you did, oh, well, now you could go see them play the Dodgers, uh, you know, every other year instead of every six years. Um, It'll be it'll be different. In, In a way, it'll be 
I, I do like it because uh, playing the White Sox or playing the Twins or playing the Guardians or playing the Tigers, uh, what was it, 19 times a year? That's a lot. And I get tired of seeing those guys. So it'll be nice to, to add some of that, uh, you know, diversity. Uh, that's the word I guess I'm going to go with uh, in the schedule. Um, the quirks are really weird to me. The off day Sunday is just going to be like, uh, I'm going to lose my mind that day probably. Because usually Sunday I'm just like chilling and, oh, I think I'll turn on the game and just kind of take a nap while I watch the game. Oh, no, not today. I'm not. They, they decided to random Sunday off day. Um, and the, the, the schedule never means much to me. I, there's an argument to be made also that the Royals play in the weakest division of baseball. And so taking away those, those intra-division games actually makes it harder for them to make the playoffs. But uh, let's be real in 2015, when they were good enough to, to go all the way, they were good enough to beat anybody at any time. Um, they were not they were not carried to the to those ninety five wins because they played the White Sox or the Tigers or the Twins or the Guardians. Uh, they they were able to beat pretty much everybody. So if you're a good team, you can you can beat these other teams and still get to the postseason. Well, I, do, I think what the balanced schedule does do though is it raises the possibility of a team with a losing record making uh, winning the division. I mean that they had a balanced schedule when they first broke to a three division uh, alignment in nineteen ninety four. And that year, the entire American League Western Division all had losing records with the Rangers. I think, you know, when the strike happened, the Rangers were in first place, but they were well under 500 uh, because they, you know, and, and then so a couple years after that, they implemented the unbalanced schedule to ensure that you would play your division so much that surely someone will <laughs> emerge from that mess with a winning record. Uh, so, so taking that back out, I think, does introduce the possibility of that happening. Now, that's a weird quirk that will happen very rarely um, something but i'm it, gonna have to root for it every year now <laughs> just now that you've raised chaos. that possibility that's what i'm looking for and the american league central is probably the division where it was probably it's most likely to happen i would think just because there's not a traditional large market behemoth in there uh so that could be kind of interesting but uh greg what do you what, what do you make of the 2023 schedule and do you like the uh do you like seeing our national league foes uh all all of our national league foes well, you know, now that you've raised that possibility of sub-500 teams making the postseason, because I had not even considered that, I am so here for it now just because <laughs> of that, because then I will like be able to dig in even further on my radical belief that the playoff seeding should be based on an, an NBA-type model where it's overall record within the league rather than making division titles a thing. I think most people would be opposed to that, but I'm here for that anyway. So maybe I'll get some more support on that side if like an 80-82 and 82 team ends up making the playoffs and win their division. So, But regardless of that, I, I don't really care that much. I'm kind of in the same boat as Jeremy there. Like I think the positives generally outweigh the negatives here like i'm okay with it i think it will be good for any fans of really any team that lives outside of their home team's market if they happen to live in a different league city they'll get to see their team come to town every other year as opposed to much more infrequently i think it's like every six years as the current interleague schedule rolls out and it will i think help competitive balance to at least some extent in the sense that for example, this year, any team that got to play the central divisions for their interleague gets just a great opportunity to pad their win totals, which that's not really going to be an advantage any team's going to get anymore. So I'm okay with that. And 
Yeah, Jeremy mentioned the quirks that I thought were also kind of weird, like the Sunday off days, the back-to-back off days on May 31st and June 1st, because those are both after the two games against the Cardinals series. So I guess we'll just need a day off to recover from playing against the Cardinals. Like, I guess that's just the implication <laughs> of this, which if they still have Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado next year, then yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. But in general, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it's totally fine. I'm, I'm down to see every team throughout the year. And I'm down to not play the Tigers 19 times a year because that just does get boring fast. Yeah, it gets pretty stale. I, I won't miss the, the 19 Royals-Twins games th- throughout the summer. Uh, you know, you mentioned the NBA formatting. And, and I, I think some people do think this is kind of the first step into baseball, getting rid of divisions or some sort of radical realignment because they have slowly erased the line you know, it used to be the American League, and you know, American League had a much different identity than the National League. The American League had the designated hitter. The National League was a lot more integrated, had a lot more speed and defense and bunting. Uh, and and now that you know, both leagues having a DH now, um, that line and both leagues they used to have separate league offices. You used to get if you were an American League player, you were suspended by the American League office. You weren't suspended by the commissioner. Um, now that's been eliminated. Now it's all under one Major League Baseball tent. Um, and so that a lot of people think that, that now that that line is pretty much gone, we're going to see them really shuffle up the teams or get rid of divisions entirely, uh, which I think is a possibility at this point. I think that's probably okay. I think I, and I used to be a guy that really was, you know, I'm a, I'm a purist. I'm a child of the eighties. I loved watching the, the difference between the leagues, but now that it's pretty much gone anyway, I don't see any point in holding on to the past once we've moved on. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see these national league teams. I would love to, you know, the Royals go to Wrigley in, in, uh, in August. Um, it's nice to have that happen every other year rather than once every six years. Um, we get to see some interesting new teams coming to Kauffman stadium this year. Uh, so I think that's going to be a, a really, a really fun thing and something a little different for teams. Now I will say, you know, we get sick of seeing the tigers 19 times, but I was talking to some non Royals fans for, for teams that, you know, fans of teams that are contenders and, they're like, you know, actually, we like playing our division rivals because it usually means something. You know, we're usually playing for first place. You know, the Mets and the Braves, they hate each other because they're always playing for first place. And you lose a little bit of that um, by not having uh, unbalanced scheduling. So, you know, like, it, I, the, the schedule a couple years ago, uh, teams all played their division rivals the last week of the season. And the NFL kind of did that for a little bit, too, where you have to play your division rival the last last week of the season because that probably that could mean something. Instead, the Royals are going to play the Yankees for probably what are going to be three meaningless games, and there's no guarantee that anyone's going to play any head-to-head divisional uh, matchups that last week. So you do lose a little bit of that. Um, but overall, I think this is kind of a good development and a good thing, and, and I'm kind of excited about seeing um, seeing some of the uh, new National League opponents that will be coming in to Kansas City. Um, I did want to ask real quick about the September schedule. Have you guys seen the September schedule? The Royals have to play... The Red Sox, the White Sox, the Blue the Blue Jays in Toronto, uh, the White Sox again in Houston, in Chicago, the Astros, the Guardians, Astros again, Tigers and Yankees. Now, aside from the Tigers, those are all probably going to be contenders. <laughs> uh, the Royals, I think, have typically gone. They've kind of done well in September in the past. I think because they, they they don't have much to play for and they're they're playing the kids. So, Greg, is that going to hurt the Royals' uh, September chances by having such a stacked schedule? I mean, realistically, it was mentioned earlier on this podcast. If you're a contending team, then you're a contender regardless of who you're playing against. And look, if you, if you want to go win the World Series one year, 
you got to be able to beat whoever happens to be in front of you. You know, like I say, you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. And so, look, if they are contending, then good for them. They're going to get a good, like, test before they have to go into the postseason of playing all of the best teams, get to know them a little bit, and then go beat them in the playoffs like we saw in 2014. Wouldn't that be great? But more likely, they're not going to be contending, and they're just going to play out the string. And we're going to get just, you know, some young guys or maybe still trying to establish themselves or trying to pad their numbers a little bit or whatever, just getting some experience against some good teams. So, I mean, either way, I don't really see any kind of downside to it. And who knows? Maybe. If there's no firings this offseason and then next year, that schedule prevents the Royals from having their usual late September strong run to save the front office. I don't, I don't know if I'm even really a believer in that whole thing anyway, but regardless, you know, you can, something to think about. Yeah, maybe if they have a tough schedule at the end of the, at the, end of the season, maybe that means they have an easier schedule at the start and they get off to a good start, build some confidence. By July, you know, that's when they make their big deal for, uh, you know, whoever. And they can they can use that to, to bolster their roster for September. We'll see. All right. So if you were to really shake things up in baseball, Greg, what is something you would want to try as far as like divisions or postseasons or whatever? I actually talked about this on one of my podcasts pretty late last year that I did where we did a kind of commissioner pod is what we called it, or just any rules we wanted to make, we could go ahead and do that. And so basically my biggest one was kind of going on the assumption there's going to be expansion in baseball sometime soon. Like I think – Within the next decade, they're going to add two teams. Like, I would bet a large amount of money on that. So, with that in mind, I assumed there would be two expansion franchises. So I went ahead and put them in uh, Nashville and Montreal. And then with 32 teams now, I would, you know, obviously one of them in the National League, one of them in the American League, and then realign basically everything. So, the American League would have two A-team divisions, so would the National League, expand to a 12-team postseason format, and then a little bit similar to kind of how the NBA does it, but with still some incentive on the division titles. So with two eight-team divisions now, if you win the division, either the West or the East, you get a first-round bye. And then after that, there would be five wild cards in each league. So total of 12 postseason teams after that. So it'd be a little bit tricky at least to or not five wild cards, I'm sorry, it'd be four wild cards with two division winners in each league. But regardless, so you have two division winners and then four wild cards in each league. So the division winners would still get that first round by. That way you still have that added incentive to win the division. But it's also a lot more difficult to win the division now with them being 18 divisions. You can't just kind of coast the division title like you know, some teams do, especially in the central divisions. So I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? If we had a 32-team league, 12-team postseason, and then divide it up like that, just two divisions in each league, six playoff teams in each league, and then first round by for division winners. I think it kind of preserves the incentive of winning the division and trying to get those wins down the stretch because presumably you're going to be battling with the other seven teams still in your division at that point. So still that incentive to try down the stretch. And there is expanded postseason, which we know MLB is just, they're all about that expanded postseason. Yeah, I, I don't like uh, expanded postseason but if you're going to do it that makes a lot more sense i like having an, an incentive to win the division which i think baseball is getting to a little bit but I, I like going back to two divisions i think that makes a lot more sense especially if you're gonna have a balanced schedule like this one um just have two division winners reward them for winning their division and if you're gonna have a lot of you know 12 playoff teams and that's fine i i, I that i'd rather not have that many but you know uh that that that, that genie is out of that bottle it's not they're not going to uh, decrease the number of playoff teams. So, yeah, I like that idea. I, and, and I think you're right. I think there, there are – this is probably paving way not only for 
you know, changing divisions, but but expansion, like you mentioned, I think it's you know we're we're long overdue for expansion. It's the longest stretch baseball's ever had where they didn't expand. Um, the you know the the talent pool is larger now with the international market, uh, more players from Asia, more players from Venezuela. Uh, so it seems like we're overdue for some expansion. I think uh, there's a tremendous amount of talent in baseball right now, um, and so I'd like to see it. Uh, and Nashville and Montreal or Portland, um, you know, maybe Charlotte, San Antonio could be candidates um i think they're waiting for you know stadium situations in oakland and tampa bay to be figured out but um but yeah i think it's coming down the pike and and that would be i think a really creative solution uh so we'll we'll see let's wrap things up our royals review reviews uh greg why don't you lead it off for us tonight yeah so uh tonight i'm going to be reviewing as i did on the last podcast appearance i made i'm going to be reviewing a beer this is from New Belgium Brewing Company in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is the 1985 IPA from their Voodoo Ranger line of IPAs. I may as well be a spokesperson for Voodoo Ranger IPAs at this point because my co-host and I on my podcast, we plug a different kind of beer basically every time we do an episode. And I very frequently plug the New Belgium beers. And so they, they ought to just kick a sponsorship my way. Might as well. But girl, it's 1985 IPA. It is a... It's quite a juicy IPA. It's very, I describe it as mango. I think that's kind of the fruit notes that I get from it, but just a little bit of hop kick at the end. So not as bitter as some IPAs you might come across, which makes sense because it is more of that juicy IPA as opposed to that like kind of hop forward West Coast style. So I wouldn't say it's my favorite of the Voodoo Rangers because I mean, well, okay, I've had a ton of Voodoo Rangers and they're all good, but this one is, it's at least in the top quartile, I'd say. So it's definitely worth a shot. I believe it is currently available in stores because they rotate around most of the different Voodoo Rangers that are available. There's, I think, three of them that are available basically all the time. And then besides that, they kind of rotate them out either seasonally or just depending on whatever special one they have. And so I, I would recommend it. Yeah, if you're a fan of IPAs or just even you know fruity beers in general, I, I say yeah, give it a shot. It's really good. Would definitely recommend if there are any beer companies that would like to uh, give us free beers to sample uh, or, to, or we're happy to plug them, uh, please contact me at Royals Review. Jeremy, uh, what, what do you got for us this week? I'm going to give you Final Fantasy uh, Origins Stranger of Paradise, which was a bizarre little game that Square Enix released earlier this year. It uh, It's... Uh, it's a, it's kind of a retelling of the original Final Fantasy, uh, but there's uh, I'm I'm only about halfway through it, uh, and there are some there's some definite changes. Uh, for starters, it has a combat system more reminiscent of what you would see in a Dark Souls game than the turn-based combat that Final Fantasy used to be known for. Uh, Square Enix has kind of been moving away from that turn-based combat. Uh, generally speaking, but they, uh, I believe it's Koi Tecmo uh, they worked with to get this game out there, and uh, I believe they worked on the Neo games. Whoever whoever did work on this game did work on the Neo games, uh, and uh, so it makes sense that there's a little bit of that in there. Um, but it absolutely has a Final Fantasy flair to it. Uh, it's the, the jobs that, uh, Final Fantasy veterans are familiar with are all still there. White mage, warrior, uh, dragoon, all that good stuff. Um, and it 
got memed on really hard when it was first announced by Square Enix because uh, their first trailer was a story trailer and featured the protagonist just saying chaos like <laughs> 10 times in a minute and a half. It was ridiculous. And uh, the story is unique, uh, but it is also kind of charming in its way. And if you're a Final Fantasy fan like me who's played all of the games or even some of the games, um, there's there's homages to, to various games in the level design. Um, and it's, it's actually the, the combat system is really in-depth and the story has enough uh, going for it that uh, I'm fascinated to see where I'm going to end up. Uh, as I complete this game. But um, if you like action games, if you like Dark Souls games, or if you're a Final Fantasy nut, uh, then this is a this is a game you might want to check out. My Royals Review review this week is a book by Chuck Klosterman. Uh, you may know him from his work at Esquire. He also used to write at Grantland, which is where I kind of got exposed to him, and he's on the Bill Simmons podcast a lot. Uh, but he writes a lot about culture and sports. Uh, and he has a book about uh, uh, collected essays about the 90s called The 90s. And uh, as a child of the 80s, I'm also a teenager of the 90s. And uh, it's kind of interesting. To, uh, some of the stuff that happened back then was I was too young to really understand or, um, you know, some of the stuff that I was able to comprehend. Um, it's nice to get the perspective now in hindsight. Um, of course, he writes about like the large topics like Nirvana and grunge music and Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky scandal, but also... Um, I think a lot of the more interesting parts about, are about tech, uh, about how the people that grew up in the 90s are the ones that are native to understanding the world pre-internet and also the world uh, once the internet was around. Um, whereas you know, some people uh, you know, that are older maybe uh, aren't as well versed in the internet and people that are younger don't really remember the age before the internet. Um, my generation, I think, kind of remembers both. And so there's some interesting perspectives on that. And I thought one of the more interesting essays is about Garth Brooks, who he writes uh, is one of the most popular entertainers of the 90s. But uh, it just seems like no one, no popular, uh, like Rolling Stone doesn't want to give him his due. He doesn't make the cover of those kind of magazines, doesn't seem to you know, uh, get recognized in the cultural zeitgeist, but yet endures through his fans and his music. So, uh, so anyway, just a lot of different perspectives on things like Quentin Tarantino's movies, uh, the rise of independent filmmaking, uh, school shootings, the rise of school shootings in the nineties. Uh, so I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, if you are someone who lived through the nineties or if you just want to, uh, read about, uh, that era, uh, I recommend Chuck Glosterman's the nineties. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks to Jeremy and Greg for being on. Uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Talk to us.